Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast, right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well, hope you're doing fine, hope everything is going okay wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever your circumstances, I hope things are are okay. I mean, I hope they're better than okay, but at the moment, maybe okay is just good enough. It's a beautiful, sunny, warm Thursday evening here in Dublin at the end of May. We're going into a bank holiday weekend. The sun is shining in the sky. Well, you know, yeah, like 93 million miles away. But, you know, it's a pretty hot thing, the sun. So we're feeling the heat here. The window is open. I've got the blind down because otherwise uh, the sun is shining right through my window and I'll roast alive. And I've got a show for you. I have got a show for you. I was struggling a little bit this week. You know, um, if you've been listening regularly throughout the, the lockdown and throughout this crisis, I've been trying to sort of bring people on to the podcast and find guests that might be interesting who, who can help us with the fact that there is no football to talk about, which is what this podcast is nominally about. Um, but this week I was, I was kind of struggling a little to think about what we were going to talk about and it was a quiet week another quiet week on the news front and i i had an idea and i asked the guest if they would do it and they said yes they would do it and it's a fairly one themed show which i'll explain to you now in a moment but then on thursday holy shit all kinds of stuff started happening like the Premier League is going to be back. Um, the day before, we had the, the return to training, but we got confirmation that on, not May, June 17th, we are going to play a game of football against Manchester City away from home. It is, I think it's the first game that's back. It was the game that was supposed to take place when Mikel Arteta um, came down with coronavirus and it precipitated the whole shutdown, as you know, but that's back. So the Premier League is returning and we have a fixed date for it and that's exciting because it becomes more real now and we'll get some football again and the schedule is about to be released. I think they did just release a statement as I'm talking here. Uh, Oh yeah, here it is. Statement on the provisional date. Uh, 17th of June. A full round of matches beginning Friday 19th of June and... Uh, what's this? All matches will have to take place without fans in stadiums. We're pleased to have come up with a positive solution for supporters to be able to watch all the remaining 92 matches. Uh, they're all going to be televised uh, in the UK anyway. We're going to have schedules of Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and some midweek matches. So, look, basically, all the games are going to be played in a big fucking 
clusterfuck of football, uh, and it's all going to be on TV, and we're going to be able to watch all of those games. Then uh, we got the news that Sir Chips Keswick, the Arsenal chairman, has retired. He was planning to retire at the end of the season anyway, uh, but he has announced his decision to step down. The role that he has as chairman of the club has become ceremonial, of course, since KSE took full ownership, 100% ownership, and the traditional board, as we have known it down the years, is no longer... Well, relevant is not the right word, perhaps, but yeah, maybe it is actually the right word. KSE don't need a board. They don't need a chairman, a vice chairman, or any of that. Uh, And Sir Chips has stepped down. So a good few bits and pieces going on from... Uh, from an Arsenal point of view, I feel like there's something else going on that I'm missing, but I can't quite remember uh, what it is. Oh, there was the whole David Luiz thing and his contract and, and all that kind of stuff. So there were, there were bits and pieces going on all of a sudden, but but I'm not going to talk about them on this podcast. These are things that James and I will discuss on the Arsecast Extra on Monday. We'll have a bit of time to think about them. We might get a bit more information, a bit more detail, and we can, we can, uh, what's the word? Chat absolute bollocks about them on Monday. Uh, that'll be good stuff for the Arsecast Extra. And who knows what else might happen over the weekend that we can throw into the, the podcast mix, the stew, the cauldron of ingredients that we will bring to you in audio fashion on Monday. So please make sure that you join us for that. But wait, wait, I hear you ask, what the fuck are you going to talk about on today's show? What a good question that is. It's one that I pondered throughout the week. What the fuck am I going to talk about? And who the fuck am I going to talk about it with? I was stumped for a little while. And then, light bulb noise, I had an idea. We all know nominally what scouting is about in football, what football scouts are, are supposed to do. But how much do we know about what they do, how they do it, how is it all joined up within a club? What's the structure of a scouting uh, operation within a football club? How much has data become a part of the job? Used to be a case, a man with a flat cap and a coat would stand on the sidelines watching and he'd see a player that he likes and he'd go back to the club and he'd say, we got to sign this kid. He's going to be something else. Let me tell you, nowadays, you've got to have eyes, but you've got to have all the data, all the information to find out exactly what you need to find out about a player. So I thought that would be an interesting thing to learn about. And who better, who better to talk about that than somebody who's been on the show before. He's the former head of scouting for North America for Arsenal, and he's still involved with the club. And it's my pleasure to welcome back to the Arsecast, Danny Carbassian. Hi, Danny. How you doing, Andrew? I'm good. How are you getting on at the moment? I'm doing okay. In London, sunny, so I can't complain too much. Okay. We're going to talk about scouting because it's obviously something that people are very aware of and, and they understand, uh, you know, what a scout does to a certain extent. But I think there are complexities and things that, you know, happen within the job and the various aspects of the job that, that we might not know about. And somebody with your experience could uh, perhaps expand on those things. And I just want to make it clear from the start that we are talking in, in very broad terms, in general terms, about the role of a scout and the way it works within a football club without necessarily... Um, uh, talking about Arsenal specifically. Obviously, your experience will inform your knowledge of this subject, but we are not talking about how scouting works uh, at Arsenal uh, explicitly. So uh, let's make that clear. 
Let's start with this question then. What is the typical scouting structure at a, a club, uh, a, a big club, we will say, Premier League club or a big European club? Yeah, I think um, there's there's always going to be a, uh, a tiered structure, uh, largely because it's just information management. Um, there's, there's scouts generally deployed around the world, depending on the size of the club, depending on the budget, obviously, and the focus that the club will have on um, that we'll still have on traditional scouting. For example, some clubs have gone uh, way the other way in terms of, of data and they, they solely rely on data where um, a lot of clubs will still have scouts, uh, traditional scouts going to games, but depending on the budgets and the size of the club, obviously they'll have um, clubs kind of spread out either across the world or just, uh, you know, within Europe or within South America or within certain parts of, you know, the country that they're, that they, that they play in. Mm. Um the, the the scouts that are on the ground generally tend to report up to um, somebody that'll be managing them, obviously. So there'll be uh, kind of tranches and groups of, of of scouts. Let's say, regardless if it's if it's in England, for example, it might just be there'll be scouts that are um, focused on just the northwest or the northeast or the south or just London. Um, and then, of course, internationally, there might be scouts all over Europe, uh, all over North America, all over South America, Central America, um, reporting into their bosses. Then. Their bosses will obviously look at the information that's coming in and then make decisions. Obviously, speaking with their um, with their scouts on the ground as well, and 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 their bosses tend to be scouts as well. So they'll be going to their own games and, and following their own targets and following their own leads and network and whatnot. Um, but essentially, the the whole goal is to uh, filter all that information uh, kind mm. of from from all the scouts that are on the ground into their bosses and their boss can obviously choose what he wants to do with that information and give it up to, um, depending on the structure, obviously of the club, whether it's a technical director, a sporting director, a head of football, um, and it goes up and then, you know, on, on a six month sober basis, depending on how, how clubs operate in the transfer window, sure. um, they'll have those conversations, whether, whether they intact on those players. So we've got like, you know, scouts on the ground who are like the call center workers and you've got the middle managers who are, you know, <laughs> providing all the information up to the big bosses as, is the the structure in many businesses i mean typically um you know given the the number of scouts that you're talking about when you've got scouts literally all over the world within a 12 month period what is the volume of uh player uh, feedback or or data that is coming into a club like how many players uh are being put on the radar of a club you know, to one extent or, or the other. Is that something you can, you can outline? Uh, um, it's it's kind of hard to put a, uh, obviously it depends on the number of scouts that you have mm. um, working and that are, that are going to games. So for, for the most part, most scouts are um, at, at multiple games a week uh, and sometimes writing reports on multiple, multiple players in a single game uh, as well. So when, um, for example, I, I used to cover all of North America. So I covered, um, the U.S., Canada, you know, Mexico. I covered pieces of Central America as well, the Caribbean. Mm. Uh, so there's always there was always football on. Um, you know, there's a, I could never call my my boss, who was Steve Roy at the time, and say, "Oh, sorry, there's nothing on this week," because <laughs> that would have been a complete lie. I covered yeah. about 15 countries. Um, so yeah, there's always there's always somewhere to go. I, th- I think uh, another piece. It's one thing just constantly reporting on players, and there's another piece of just doing it in an intelligent way, uh, ensuring that you're actually covering. Um, the players that need to be covered, you know, uh, it, there's, 
it's it's hard to it's hard to say like they there's this number of reports mm. that are coming in obviously because you'll go watch a lot of players watch a lot of games and then if a player is doing really well for example uh, and you get tipped off about them you'll go and you'll write you'll write a report about him just in case um not just to cover yourself obviously because sure. you want to get eyes on him but uh he might not be good enough for the club but you will still put a report in to give you know your opinion on him to ensure that uh, if he does end up going to another club for example in six months time or a year's time um, you know your, your boss or, or his boss can go back into the system and be like oh, okay Danny went to watch this player and this, these are what his thoughts were hmm. uh, on the time for example or this is why he didn't want to pursue him um, so yeah so it, it, I, I think it depends on you know on the scout the personality some scouts tend to you know, want to write reports all the time on players, and then their bosses obviously have just more content that they need to go through. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the players are going to be good enough for the club that they're scouting for. Yeah. Uh, but the, the scouts are out there writing, so I, I think it really—it's um, it, hard to just put a number on it. I think it depends on the scout and the organization. What about the the remit of the various scouts? Um, you know, I could be completely wrong here, but it strikes me that if you're a scout in North America, or if you're a scout in, you know, a foreign country, you're probably more likely to be looking for first team players, whereas scouts within England could potentially be looking for uh, players to bring in at a younger age to bring into the academy. I mean, is there a specific uh, remit for these scouts? Like, we need you to find us first team players? Or is it a case that, you know, if you see an exceptional talent, whatever the age, this is this is a player we would be interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question, and, and probably one that I get asked quite um, quite a bit. The, the generally the international scouts will, um, you know, as you say, like it's much harder to bring, especially now, uh, youth players in from abroad. Like mm. there has to be some pretty interesting or special circumstances for that to um, uh, for that to happen. Uh, with that said, they they tend to be in charge of the whole region from. Um, from youth all the way up to you know up to the first team essentially sometimes there are pretty interesting circumstances that can take place where families are moving or there's opportunities for work and and it just happens to you know passports are all in place and it works right mm. um i mean gideon gideon's a kind of a great example of that he was um i think he was 13 the first time i was told that i needed to go watch him like when i when i got tipped off by his uh by somebody that was in my network essentially uh and then joel campbell was um, 18, you know, the first time I watched him playing in the under 20, um, playing in the under 20, um, world cup qualifiers in mm. Guatemala, for example. So like there's kind of, there's varying, varying, um, uh, the age groups there, like you'll, you'll cover quite a bit. I, I used to get phone calls, uh, you know, th- these days I think it's, um, it, it's pretty wild. Like I still get Instagram, like DMS and Twitter messages saying like, you have to go watch the six year old kid who's just tearing it up in the <laughs> middle of Kansas, you know? And, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of people just don't understand. Like, there's nothing. You know, there's nothing we can, um, you know, do <laughs> yeah. with a six-year-old kid. Uh, uh, and it's also it'd be a hard sell calling like your boss and being like, ah, I've got this great six-year-old. Uh, yeah, we just need to fly. You know, him yeah. and his entire family over to the UK and spend all this money. So, um, so there's that. And then um, generally in the um, in, in the in the UK as well, a lot of clubs will tend to have the academy scouts and uh, and first team scouts as well. And some. Um, when I when I was when I was covering the U.S. actually, I was actually covering probably I did cover a lot of first team stuff, but I was covering 
the the age group that kind of falls between uh, very young kids and then the the first team stuff so like 16 17 year old kids so i was watching quite a few uh you know youth games not not particularly professional games or professional games where there was uh there was a player that was doing exceptionally well that was 16 or 17 that was getting opportunities um the the scouts over here will tend to um either be first team you know first team scouts uh, exclusively or uh, or academy scouts i i quite enjoyed uh, when I when I did move back over here and I was going to games um, here and there, I was actually I didn't do any. Uh, I haven't actually even done any particularly youth games since I've since I've been in the UK for the last four years. Um, I've only really gone to Premier League Championship and and, and Champions League games. And mm. it's uh, for, from a scouting, um, I guess from a scouting intelligence point of view and just from a growth perspective, it is interesting because like when you go, you know, when you're at a, in, in a stadium with and. and and we can speak a little bit about this later as well of how how the relationships work between clubs and all that good stuff. But like you're sat with other scouts in a stadium watching a Premier League game as opposed to sitting, you know, uh, alongside parents on a field, yeah. you know, in the middle of nowhere in the United States with ten people in the crowd watching a game. It, it's very very different. So, uh, but to answer your question, yeah, generally like most um, uh, scouts tend to yeah the remit will be like either first team or academy, and sometimes there's a, there's a mix of both. So what? Is the process, let's say a club decides, you know, the transfer market is opening and, and let's pretend between ourselves right now that the transfer market is still going to be uh, operating in the way that we've we've understood it. Um, you know, I think as we go forward, it's obviously going to uh, change and, and that might change the work that you guys uh, as scouts have to do. But, you know, let's say a club decides going into a summer, uh, mid-season perhaps, okay, we're going to need a left-back in the summer. How does that sort of process work? I mean, at what point typically is that decision made? Is it, you know, right at the end of the season? Is it with three or four months to go before the end of the season? And how is that uh, need of the club then communicated? Is it a case that there's sort of like a, you know, I, I don't want to say like a, a, a scout's message board where everybody logs on. It's like, right, quick, find us a left back. We all, you know, everybody get on the ground and find us a left back. I mean, how does how does that work when a club decides this is a player that we need? How is that then transmitted and communicated to the scouting network? Yeah, so I think this, this is actually, this is really interesting because it's much more uh, th- th- there's a lot more than just our, you know, the left backs hasn't had a good season or the left backs played a couple bad games and now we need a new left back. Mm. Um, I think, you know, football clubs are, are a lot of them are, you know, organizations where there's youth teams set in place. Obviously, as you know, as I said, there's the scouts that are everywhere looking for players and all that good stuff. And, um, a lot of the, you know, if, if, if you're going to go and say like, we need to strengthen our, our, let's say as for example, the left back spot, like, um, I think they'll start to look at the like what they have internally first and say, okay, what is our, our first choice and second choice? Do we have any covered there, for example? And then the next logical step would be, well, let's go to the 23s or the the academy and see who's actually coming mm. through the ranks as well. So you start to look at there and say, okay, well, if there's a player that's maybe a year away from uh, pushing on, he's 17 years old, for example, and he's a year away from actually breaking into the first team um, and will end up saving you know, 20 or 30, 40 million pounds. Yeah. Um, then how can we, like, what can we do now to almost say like, okay, like let's just aid in his, in his development so that we can, we can build from within. Um, if there's obviously absolutely nothing there, then, 
then you have to decide if you want to go out into the market. And that that's, I wouldn't say that's done um, just at the end of the season. Obviously, there's squad planning that goes on throughout the entire season, making sure that, um, you know, as well, contingencies, if anything happens injury-wise, like there's people that have jobs to ensure that they know what happens if this happens to players and what happens if we um, need more cover here, if a player come, or if another club comes in and wants to buy that player, are we willing to sell them all that good stuff? Um, that'll get obviously passed down to um, the manager will obviously be in communication with either if it's the head of scouting or a technical director or sporting director. Um, again, there's mm-hmm. so many kind of various ways football clubs are run now that it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a bit different, but um, once, once people have decided um, that uh, a player does need to, to get watched, then um, that message would just filter down like it would do in any other organization to all the other scouts to say, okay, let's let's start looking for you know these positions because we're looking to strengthen in this window or 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 in the summer, for example, um, and then. And then from there, uh, as you start to focus on those, the best, the best from those positions will be get sent, uh, will get sent up, um, and then and and then you'll start to just pick and choose who who we think the best are. The the head heads of scouting will start to look at those players. Obviously, start to get data on them. If we do want to make a decision, we'll start to look at uh, much more than just the the footballing side of things, like character wise. Um, obviously, if there's going to be a fee involved, what has yeah. to what has to happen there? Do we know the agent? Um, are the club willing to sell? the player obviously all that good stuff so it's much more than just um oh yeah we need a left back and yeah. then we have we have 30 million let's go let's go get one basically. sure yeah i mean i think people are aware that there is a process uh, you know and, and many layers to any kind of transfer which is why you know a transfer that might seem to be nearly done can can fall apart at the last minute because there are all these boxes to take and things to to get in order but i'm interested you mentioned data there and i'm sort of curious a, how it has changed the job of a scout. Um, how, how much does the data identify targets or uh, how much, you know, is it sort of used in a way, okay, let's say you see a player and you say, look, I think this guy could be really good. You've watched him. You've, you know, done your assessments. And I want to ask you about those in a moment as well. You know, is it a case that, Right, Danny has identified X player. Now let's go look at the data for X player. Um, and similarly, is there a, are there situations where I mean, I think we 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 heard about it with Lucas Torreira, for example, when Sven Mislintat was at the club, that there were um, parameters, data led parameters that he used to identify players of a certain profile, and then going out and scouting those players. So you know it. it it surely must have changed the job in a fairly significant way over the last number of years. Uh, I think it has for sure. And uh, I think I, I absolutely love um, for those, for those that know me, like I love tech and um, I love what software can do to improve efficiencies and whatnot in, in our day-to-day lives. Um, data in football is really interesting. And I think what it, what it does do, it helps uh, it helps do two things really well. One is to flag to flag players that you otherwise may have, I don't want to say would have missed, but maybe you would have overlooked for whatever reason. And maybe it highlights a certain attribute of theirs that you um, may have missed, for example. And then um, it also helps validate assumptions. Uh, that, mm. You know, as I said, I, I used to cover all of North America, which was a lot. And yeah. this was really, really, this was pre, pre data. There was no, um, you know, now there's so many, even there's, there's free resources out there where you can just go get data on, on lots and lots of players now, you know? Um, 
it would have what it does do it helps say like okay i'm looking for the the strikers in this region for example that are able to do x y and z really good and suddenly you have a short list and then you can as a scout who you know has their own opinion you can go watch the player and then you know establish your own opinion on the player as well um and then similarly you can say I've gone and watched this player pre-data. You have no idea, you know, what, what the data is saying. You've gone and said, this kid's incredible. He runs the players. He gets past them. Every time he's he's isolated, he gets a cross in. Every cross that he puts in results in a good opportunity. Like it, You can write that, and then you mm. can actually go validate it through data and say, oh, actually, he is. He's one of the best. Um, he's one of the best wingers, you know, in the final third in, in, in the Champions League or in the Bundesliga or the Premier League. Um, so I think it's, it's really interesting um, there. I also think... Football is such a dynamic sport and such a dynamic game um, that it's still it's still quite difficult to um, essentially to make to make football binary <laughs> and yeah. say like this you know like he's you know he's a ninety four percent intelligence level player. Sure. Yeah, it's, hard, yeah. it's hard to say that sort of stuff. And um, you know one one of the examples I use really really often, and I'm sure a lot of data guys would be like, oh, we've got a you know we have an algorithm for that now, or we could we could track that now. Um, is Zidane used to always just drop a shoulder and let the ball run across his body, and that would be kind of the brilliance, and that would be what got him space and got him time to mm. you know make the next killer pass, and all that would be you know all that would be actually tracked would be a pass from a to b and b sure. being Zidane and him just get, getting the ball and then playing it when um that doesn't really tell the whole story yeah um, so yeah there's there's uh, I, I think i think you know data does help um does help quite a bit but i, th- I think and i think it's like plugging into the way um traditional scouts go out and, and watch players and all that good stuff now now in a nice way obviously sometimes i think like there's there's still like the the ultra like you know we only need traditional scouts and then there's the ultra, like we only need data and that's yeah. it. And I think like, uh, like most stuff, like being kind of in the middle and trying to adopt both, I think is an interesting place to be. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the, I think there's an old fashioned view that, you know, you can see with your eyes, whether a player is any good, but I mean, have there been times when you, you have an opinion about a player or you've, you've got some assumptions about a player and you look at the data and things, once you've looked at that data become obvious. I mean, can you miss things in a player's game? that become apparent once you're aware of them if you like you're you're looking for them uh i think so i think i think what it does as well is it gives you you know unless you're tracking the player every single you're at every single game of his um or, or sometimes you might just go and watch three amazing games of his which is great too because you can say okay like he he's he's brilliant and 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 i think he's he's of interest obviously it's it's there's checks and balances as well. Like another scout would probably go, and then one of the senior scouts would go and and, and validate, you know, your your opinion as well. Um, but I, th- I think what it does do when you go when you go watch a player a couple times, and you actually see the data and say, okay, like, yeah, maybe maybe okay, so he's not as good in in uh, in headers, for example, aerial challenges as, as I thought he was. The mm. next game I go to, I'll I'll exclusively watch him in the air, or I'll pick a game where I know that he's going to have an absolute battle in the air and just see how he does. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of a, a lot of really good scouts as well. I don't want to say they don't need that. You know, that's that's kind of the beauty of um, kind of some of the best scouts in the world is they can go watch one or two games and then give you an opinion on a player, and it's it's pretty spot on you know yeah um i think this just helps helps the process and and um it kind of democratizes it a little bit more in terms of just like having more information and then choosing what you do with it 
Yeah. I mean, is the, the prevalence of data, does it really sort of make the job? I mean, I know when, when it comes to assessing players and what have you, it makes it, uh, as you said, not easier, but you know, you can, you can discover things about a player and you can find, uh, traits within a player, et cetera, et cetera. And it works both ways. But is the, the availability of this data across, uh, the football world, does that make it more difficult to sort of unearth hidden gems, if you like, players that we all hope our club can can discover from somewhere. And I think, uh, you know, at the moment of someone like Gabriel Martinelli, who has come to Arsenal and, and not an unknown quantity. It's not as if nobody had ever heard of him and he'd had trials at Manchester United, et cetera, et cetera. But that idea that, okay, you could go somewhere and you could find a player, you know, maybe you're going to look at a, a another player at a game and somebody else catches your eye and, and they could they could make a career from that. But, you know, if all this data is available to all these football clubs, how does a club gain any kind of competitive advantage when it comes to the use of data? Or is that even possible? Um, I definitely think it's possible. I mean, to, to answer your first question regarding like Martinelli and in terms of like if data is available to everybody, I mean, that's the, you know, that that still makes traditional scouting super important, obviously. You know, there's the fourth division in Brazil doesn't mm. have uh, a data feed that you can just plug into and get all of the, sure. all the yeah. actions of all the players from all the games. Uh, and it's like that for a lot of the, you know, a lot of the leagues around the world. There is certainly a lot of data floating around now. Um, but then again, as I said, it, it, it's choosing what you want to, you know, what you want to do with it. And I think the, you know, the best data scientists are able to grab, grab data and then write models around the information in such a way that is relevant and also helps tell a story and paint a picture. Right. I mean, that, Mm. that goes across any, you know, any organization, it's easy just to get a bunch of data and then, and then kind of visualize it and say, well, here's, here's all this. And it happens every single day, especially right now with, uh, with, with coronavirus and COVID-19, all this, there's so many things that are just hitting the, hit, hitting you in the face data wise that doesn't really tell any story, but it's just data. Um, I think the best, the best data teams, especially in the football world, are able to actually, um, how do I say this? Like, Turn turn what's happening into the pitch into something that you can actually converse about and have a have a strong conversation about, and then go um, action off of as well. So mm-hmm. if you look at a report and say, okay, like he is he is very good at doing, as I say, X Y Z or whatever, uh, going and saying, you know what, like he is the data is the data is right, or um, maybe I wasn't looking at that player before because we were looking at a different type of um, a different type of profile of a, of a player, but this guy actually ticks you know like seven of the eight boxes that we're looking for yeah um and we and we can go from there so i don't um you know it's still as i said like like football so it it's so fluid it's so it's it it, it, it's not like baseball where it's either you get on base or you don't get on base like i I read moneyball i enjoyed moneyball loved moneyball um but they're such different games and they're so dynamic and, and creative players are able to thrive in the game because you can't put numbers on some of the stuff that they come up with. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I, I think it does, it does, it certainly helps. And, and some clubs will get a competitive advantage out of it. Um, but you also see some clubs that have gone completely the, the way of data and, and it's been a complete competitive disadvantage, if you will. 
Do you feel like the data and the information that clubs can get can become more sophisticated? Because like you say, you give that example about Zidane and there's no metric for, you know, dropping the shoulder and finding space or, uh, you know, someone you played with, Cesc Fabregas, the ability really to to sort of look up around and, and see what's on while the ball is being played to you, you know, playing with your head up. I know that's probably something that you would look at as a scout with your eyes, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, to, to make that a data point is, is probably quite difficult. It feels to me, and I, you know, I'm, uh, you know, very much a, a layman in, in, in this thing, but it feels to me like over the last number of years, the amount of data and, and the various metrics have become a lot more sophisticated and they're being developed mm-hmm. over time. I mean, do, do you think that there's a sort of, um, a point of no return where we've sort of got everything down to the nth degree or is it something that can be developed even further? I mean, I think that, like, you know, as you said, it's it has gotten much, much better. I mean, before the only there was data in the game, all it was was the number of passes that you've made, the number of meters you've ran. You know, like that was that was the initial that was V one, if uh, mm. if you will, of data. And now it's gone way way deeper into like XG, you know, expected assists, all all, all that good stuff. I think it will continue to, and, and you know, as I said, like I have. I have a bunch of friends that work in um, not just at Arsenal, but across in the U.S. and stuff that work in, in football and data. There's a bunch of new consultancies that are coming out um, that provide data to football clubs and help analyze players and managers and all mm. that good stuff. I think it is getting, you know, it's getting better and better and more sophisticated. But as I said, I think there's small there's small things that make football so special and make players so special that um, will continue just to be hard to quantify. I mean, I I watched that. I, I don't know if you saw the. Um, uh, Sesk spoke to Rio Ferdinand the other day in a, in a really cool interview talking about just his career and all that good stuff mm. on YouTube. It was really, it was a really good watch, but, um, Rio and him were talking a little bit about like, you know, they were, they're basically just like bigging each other up the whole time. Being like, you know, when I played against you, it was so hard because every time like Sesk got the ball, you was saying every time you got the ball, Sesk, like you would look up. The first thing you did was look up and then we were under like in trouble right away because your first pass was always forward to Thierry or Dennis. Yeah. Um, and he said, Sesk said the same thing. He was like, uh yeah but against you guys like i struggled at times because that space wasn't there when i looked up and and rio was like yeah what i used to do was uh the moment that you were about to get the ball is i'd like shove basically like push push tierry or push dennis and get them off off track just a little bit and then create like three yards and drop off a little bit and prevent you know prevent you from playing that ball and and that that like what ends up happening is that like, I mean, from a data perspective, I'm sure this is, maybe this is getting quantified. I, uh, it's, it's probably beyond me, but what ends up happening is Sess doesn't end up playing the ball. And then there's no like defensive metric for Rio for having prevented that ball from getting played. But yeah. really it was his just intelligence and just like willingness to just like sauce it up a little bit and get in the mix to, yeah. to prevent that ball from, from tearing them apart essentially. So I think it's that like that, that, like that intelligence factor. That's just, that, I think that's the bread and butter in terms of figuring out if they if they can figure that out, how to, you know, how to quantify that um, then, then yeah. But also uh, in my opinion, it takes away a little bit of the special, the special part of the game uh, too, you know? So. Sure. No, I mean, I think it's, it's uh, you know, people who've got the ability to see those things and to recognize those things for what they are, as well as being able to marry them and analyze the data that they've got on those players, I suppose, who will turn out to be the most successful scouts or find the, the most uh, successful uh, recruitment strategies. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Let's talk, just sort of break it down to an even more granular level because we've been talking about clubs and we've been talking about, you know, how typically they might operate and, and find and recruit players, uh, whether it's for first team or, or youth teams. But what about the the job of, you know, a gigging scout, if you like? How does that work for him uh, in the sense that, you know, there's obviously a process to go through, you know, to get access to games, mm-hmm. just to get into the stadium. I mean, are there, um, there's obviously uh, communications between the clubs. Do you have to say, hello, my name is, uh, you know, Danny, I'm the scout for X. I want to come and see today's game between blah and blah. I mean, are there official forms or, or, or is there a network of, of uh, access that, that scouts generally have uh, available to them? Yeah, so so that was I mean that was one of the big things that was um, massively different from when I moved from um, the U.S. back over here and, and began going to watch games a little bit here was just how um, just the relationships between the clubs and between the secretaries of the clubs reaching out to each other um, and requesting tickets, uh, which is in my opinion it was just a really cool uh, kind of plot that I just didn't know existed in football and this is specifically in the Premier League you know um, basically the, the during the week I'd get given a game maybe on a Wednesday or a Thursday from from my boss and say Danny you're going to let's just say you're going to watch Arsenal United um, and you're going to watch this player and I say okay perfect and then he would do that as well he would organize um, he'd organize the, the scouts and sometimes the scouts will pick their own games obviously in their own region as well um i'm saying specifically uh within the uk sometimes they have a director telling them where to go or a coordinator and then sometimes they'll just be choosing their own games but um ultimately all the requests will go into one person and then that person will mm. email all the clubs saying we need a ticket for this game this is the scout that's going he needs a car park pass he doesn't need a pass so just one ticket um and then they just wait and hear back and they'll say yeah it's uh They'll they'll have a ticket in the director's box or they'll have a ticket in the general seating, whatever, mm. and then they just send it on, tell you if you need a dress code and whatnot. You just it, it's the clubs communicating essentially, and then the secretary will forward the email on to you and say your ticket's confirmed. You sure. just show up and then go to the uh, go to the ticket booth and ask and, and for the most part, ninety nine percent of the time there's a ticket waiting for you. Ninety nine percent of the time. I like that. <laughs> yeah. There's always yeah. there's always that one percent of a time. So okay, you you're going to the game, you've been given the uh, the job of going to this game by your boss by the head scout or whoever that might be, the head of regional scouting, et cetera, et cetera. What are you doing when you get there? I mean, are you being asked to look at, you say you're being asked to look at this particular player. Are there various aspects 
of the player's game that you're being asked to look at, do you have like a checklist, for example? Are there little tick boxes? Uh, you know, do you have to give him grades from one to ten on on the various aspects of his game? I mean, can you, without giving any trade secrets away, give us a bit of insight into into how that works when you're watching the game and you're watching this player? What exactly are you doing, and how are you? How are you making the kind of notes that afterwards you can parse into the report that you then have to bring back to the club? Yeah, so I, I think the, I mean, the, the important thing right away, obviously, is is going and saying, especially if you're watching a player for the very first time, is just going and saying, okay, like I'm going in with a fresh mind here. I just want to see if I see this guy as being a player that could eventually play in the first team of whatever club that I'm working for. Mm. Right. Um, it has to pass kind of, you know, that, that that's the mentality you go in. And then obviously you can get a little bit more granular. I don't want to, I won't mention the, the, the pieces that we, um, the pieces that we look at specifically, but also obviously we have a criteria groups of um, groups of at- attributes that we, that we look at from a player. Yeah. Um, and then we, I, I, I tend and scouts work in obviously in very different ways. And now that, um, now that kind of videos come into it as well, um, sometimes I tend to just write down uh, minutes, like the things happen and then I can actually go back and do a video report on the player and actually show, um, the points that I'm trying to make to my to my boss, for example, to say like he's you know he's very good in one v ones, and I can show you that to you at minute 35, minute yeah. 44, like it happened in these in these scenarios, for example. Um, so yeah, I, I think it depends. Sometimes you go like it, it's funny. Like I've uh, I, I've now sat next to a variety of scouts. Some scouts that. Um, the times just think that it's great to be at a game and they they see their friends who are also scouts and they end up just talking to the other scouts the entire time. And I'm not sure how much work they're getting done or if they're doing any work, or maybe if they're just fooling everybody <laughs> and they're getting all the work done and just con- like getting the other people to not watch the game. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's those guys, there's guys that um, one scout who have become actually quite friendly with uh, the works in the Premier League uh, basically just pulls out his Blackberry and he's become just the, the champion of watching a game and being able to type on his Blackberry uh and he's who just, uses like, a blackberry at this t- i know <laughs> in this i think well, I, he has, I think it's just his input device i, I think right. that's just because I, I actually asked him uh, i hadn't seen him about three or four months and um a lot of these guys as i said like you end up sitting um you end up sitting in in the stadium in, in basically like most clubs will reserve maybe 10 10 tickets for scouts for for mm. visiting scouts and you end up just sitting in a row uh, either a row or two rows, for example, of just 10 scouts. Uh, sometimes, as I mentioned, it'll be in a really, really convenient area where it's just easy to watch the game. You know, you are there for work at the end of the day, too. So uh, anytime you can be in a, in a comfortable setting where you can actually just focus on what's actually happening on the pitch. And I, I know I sound probably like really pompous and several of my friends are always like hammering me whenever I'm like, oh, I need to go to this ground. Like they, they see you in the corner flag. You can't even see anything, you know, and they're like, Danny, you're at a Premier League game. Yeah, like, yeah, okay, yeah. I know, but like, <laughs> like, if there's a giant pole in the way and you can't see anything, then it becomes difficult to actually do your job. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny, like it's a, it's a bit of a, a strange situation where there's like these 10 people that are sat side by side. As I said, sometimes a lot of the, uh, some of the guys might know each other and be talking the entire time. Other times, like you just see the same people over and over. And it's a bit, um, it's kind of like this unwritten rule uh, where it's awkward to ask somebody who they work for and like, you know, anything involving the job. Cause it is quite a, um, 
I don't want to say it's a covert job, but you know, like sometimes you're sat in the, in the season ticket holder. So there's fans just above you watching you yeah. write your notes essentially. Um, but yeah, this one guy had this Blackberry, he has this Blackberry and I, I, three months, you know, after having not seen him, I said, Hey, I haven't seen you in a while. It is like, yeah, what's your name? Bob, we introduced or introduced each other. And I said, uh, I just have you down as the guy that like just crushes the Blackberry still. And I haven't seen a Blackberry in like 10 years, <laughs> but you're able to write about 300 words a minute on that thing. Um, but yeah, so, 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 so sometimes there's scouts that write an inordinate amount of notes. I mean, I, I always used to remember um, Steve Rowley, who uh, initially scouted me and then hired me as a scout uh, as well. When I first started scouting, I, I flew back, back to England, spent about three weeks here and, um, with him just going around watching games um, with him and, and just learning how to actually watch games. We'd go watch a game together and then he'd task me with writing a report on a player and then he'd absolutely slaughter me after I su- submitted the report until I got to the point where I was actually able to write reports that were useful on players, which was nice. Um, but uh, he, he would always say, Danny, like, you know, you can write a little bit, but I always laugh at the scouts that are sat there looking at their notepad writing while the game's going on because they're missing you know, they're missing half the game often. So sure. uh, I think it's a, it's a fine balance of, you know, waiting for the ball to go out. And also like, you know, sometimes if you're, if you're there watching a, a, a top target, for example, and there'll be, they'll, you'll have a United scout sat next to you, Tottenham on the other side of you, like, um, and there might be a couple of players, for example, there that are of interest in the game you're watching. Uh, it becomes quite obvious if like the, the player that everybody's watching uh, is, like right when he does something, everybody starts writing. Yeah. Uh, and I know, I know, I know it sounds, it sounds no, silly yeah. because, you know, there's always, it's always in the press saying, oh yeah, like, you know, Arsenal on this player, Tottenham on this player, United or this player, all that good stuff. But like you do try, and I'll go back and say like, oh yeah, I saw, uh, I'll tell my boss, I'll say, I saw Tottenham were there last night and whenever so-and-so touched the ball, you know, their scout was literally writing something down. They'll be like, oh, that's interesting. Didn't We didn't know he was, they were in for him as well. They were interested in him as well. So, Would that make um, any difference to a club? Like if, you know, for example, let's say you're there to scout one player and, you know, you look around you and these, these nameless, faceless rival scouts from whatever club they come from, they're all busy jotting down something when a different player is doing something in the game or does something in the game and you go and report that back i mean could that potentially influence a a club's outlook on that player uh i mean i don't know if it would influence the outlook but it might just make you think like oh have we like Hmm. maybe maybe, let's like let's get another like we know know, like four other scouts have seen that team play and have have seen uh, that player like let's let's just ask to make sure like we're not you know like almost double checking yourself so um, I'm sure the other clubs are doing, you know, are doing the same thing. You don't go around asking who you work for without without relaying that information, uh, unless you're just ecstatic to know who was in attendance that day. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it is a it, it is, and and that's uh, that that goes. You know, I've I've been to some games in um, in Spain and France as well, and uh, similarly, they put the scouts all in kind of one area, and everybody's there, you know, writing. You can you can always tell who who the scouts are from about a mile away. Sure. Uh, l- largely because whenever the home team scores, they're all sat down looking <laughs> quite miserable. <laughs> is it, I mean, so, is, it a, uh, is it a competitive business, Danny, in, in the sense, okay, look, there's a limited pool of players and there's, you know, all the clubs are looking for the best players that they can possibly get. I mean, within the scouting industry itself, I mean, you guys aren't the ones who are making, really making the decisions because you've got to bring them upstairs and the clubs have got to do the deals 
and find the money and all that kind of stuff. But but is there an element of competition between scouts that if you've got someone on your radar, how do you, if you feel like this is a, a player that not too many people are looking at, how do you how do you do your work without tipping your hat to other clubs? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a. It, it, first of all, it is obviously it's very, very, very competitive. I think at the first team level, if a player is doing particularly well, then um, it's it's going to be hard to like hide any sort of you know interest. And, and also at the end of the day, the club, if he, if if for example, I'm watching a, a player that's based in London and mm. I'm continuously going to watch him, then our secretary is obviously messaging that club on a weekly basis saying. Like, can I get another ticket? Can I get another ticket? So if anything, I'm sure the secretary's are like, oh, okay, I know who they're interested in. Like they keep coming to watch our, our team play on a weekly basis. Yeah. Um, I don't like it, the, the industry itself, as I said, is, is quite, um, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of respect. There's a lot of respect amongst, amongst scouts. Cause it's not the, you know, it's not the easiest of jobs by any means when it comes to, yeah. Okay. I get it. You go watch football and that's, that's your job. And a lot of people, would say that's their dream job and for, for a lot of people it is their dream job obviously and it's wonderful but it is it is also a lot of work where you're just you're going to a bunch of games and uh you know for me from having gone from playing where every saturday there was a result for example where like you either win or you lose and then you have another week to focus on the next time um there's a lot of work that's done that actually just nothing comes comes of it because you're obviously relying on you know, wh- mm. whatever is going on in your region. Right. So like when I was in the United States, like, you know, 99% of the games that I went to didn't result in any, it took four years for me to, to identify that Gideon was good enough to bring over. And then six months later I saw Joel as well. So like a lot, a lot of the time you're going without anything actually happening. Um, so it can be quite a bit and, and depending on, you know, UK, it might be slightly different, but like when I was in, in North America, like it was a very, very lonely profession as well. I was on planes, three times a week in hotels, you know, four, four nights a week, sometimes like two weeks in a row, mm. um, just watching, you know, watching games and nothing will come of it go home for a couple of days, try to figure out what my next, what my next trip would be. Um, but in, in, in terms of like the UK here, like a, a lot of the, a lot of the scouts end up, um, if managers do, there's a lot of turnover obviously within the management world. And a lot of the managers will end up bringing their scouts along with them as well. So at the start of the season, there's always, um, I don't want to say like the merry-go-round of scouts, but you'll see you'll go to a game and you'll be like, oh yeah, how's you know how's everything at Everton? And they'll be like, oh, I'm at I'm at Bristol now actually. And I'm like, oh, sure, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and you kind of hear um, you hear a little bit about that, and 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 uh, you learn a little bit about how they work in, in that capacity, and whatnot. But a lot of the guys will be kind of loyal to their managers, and their managers will be loyal right back to them and bring them around. Yeah, I suppose that means you have to have you know some strong leadership at the top of the recruitment. Uh, side of the club you know whether it is the technical director the sporting director head of scouting head of football whatever it might be you know to deal with you know those those various things you know to try and at <laughs> least maintain some semblance of synchronicity if you like in terms of the work people are doing and um you know the people that you have doing that work yeah no for sure i, I think and then you know you nailed it like the leadership side of things i think is um i think is important because yeah mm. I, I mean i was 6,000 miles away from the office, you know, uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and feeling as if you're a part of, um, feeling as if you're a part of an organization and feeling as though what you're doing matters, even though it's not getting reflected immediately. And, you know, as I said, on a Saturday and then waiting a week and then having it reflected again on the next Saturday, like, um, 
uh, like ensuring that you're um, obviously improving yourself as well as a scout, knowing what you need to look at and what you don't need to look at. And that's why like we, we do bring the, the scouts from, from all over the world over uh, several times a year to watch sessions, watch the first team, go watch the under 23s, understand um, what, you know, what's needed, what the standard is, all that good stuff. Cause it is it, it, when you're, when you're so far away, especially the international scouts at times, like, um, and you're watching a completely potentially different standard of football, yeah. uh, it can become quite difficult to be like, Oh, okay, this kid's good, but like, I, I need to, I need to touch base with what really good is again, you know, yeah. and understand exactly what we need. Um, and, and that, and that's probably one of the hardest jobs of scouting internationally is being able to look at a player that's in a completely different environment. Um, whether it be just the level of the game or the, the culture mm. of where he's coming from, the culture of his family, the, the, the weather, you know, as I said, the place, and then saying like, if I pluck this kid out of Southern California, for example, and drop him in, um, you know, St. Albans, is he going to be the same player and we'll be able to mentally deal with the change and, and actually continue to improve? Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I was going to ask you about that in terms of, let's say you've got a player who ticks all the technical boxes and you look at him on the pitch and you think, yes, he can do all the things that we want this player to do. Uh, and you can judge, I think, to a certain extent, I suppose there is crossover with their with their overall character, but sometimes a player on the pitch can be very different from the you know the person off it. Is that another part of the process where if you say all the technical uh, criteria are here, do you then have to have conversations with the player uh, to to gauge whether or not they're going to be the right fit for a club? You know whether it's because they're uh, a young age and it might be too much too soon for them, or or whatever it might be. Um, do you have to have those conversations? I, I mean, I think so. I mean, you also you might you especially if it's a young player, you'll try to get to you know meet the player and understand what he's like as a kid and as a person, all that good stuff. Um, and you'll also ask, you'll just, as, as a scout, it's much more, your job is much more than just going to watch, watch a player. It's certainly understanding and putting together an entire package slash story of what the player's like, um, on the field. And then, you know, one of the questions you'd get asked is like, what's his, what's the situation back home? Does he come from a, does he come from a, a, a good environment? Like, you know, if we take him away, like, is he just going to be a wild child when he comes to London is, um, mm. is he a fighter? Like, you know, all this good stuff, uh, that you just want to have, you know, you want to have the full picture whenever you bring a player into any dressing room, just so you know, it's not going to completely disrupt absolutely everything. Um, but that's that, yeah, that is the, um, that is sometimes the hardest part. I, I brought I brought a boy over um, from the United States. Uh, the first boy that I brought, we d- we didn't end up signing him. Excellent, excellent, excellent player. Um, technically, tactically, like had had a lot of really, really, really good, and still, I mean, he's still a good player. Like had a lot of good things going for him. Um, when he came, it was funny. I asked him. Uh, uh, I asked him like after two weeks. I said, like, can you see yourself? Or I think actually Steve Rowley asked him, like, can you see yourself? you know, being here and living in London, all this good stuff. And, uh, he was, I, I, he was young as well. He was like, nah, not really. You know, we were like, Oh, <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, like, but again, like it, it, they're young, they're young kids, but it's just like, man, how, you know, like have a little bit of, and I remember his agent, which is like, Oh, I don't think he meant that. And I was like, well, <laughs> what did he mean? Then? Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, it is, it is hard. And it's not, you know, it's, when, when push comes to stuff, I think everybody has this, wants this dream of being able to play, um, 
you know, professional football and all that good stuff after two, after two weeks on, you know, on a trial, it's, it's maybe it's not for, you know, maybe it's not for everyone. You learn quite quickly that you don't want to be away from your family and friends and maybe, you know, that, that, life potentially although it looks great it's just not you know yeah. not for you so having those conversations and building that like that portfolio on the entire players is absolutely important yeah i wonder is that something that we kind of underestimate at times you know the 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 culture change and the change in environment and you know i think any young player could look at you know moving to london or moving to arsenal you know as a hypothetical of course as a great opportunity but you know i know um that there are players who have gone from Ireland to England and struggled with homesickness and haven't made mm-hmm. it in England because they're homesick. And like, you know, there isn't a vast difference between life in Ireland and life in England in terms of the culture, the weather, et cetera, et cetera. So when you're bringing a kid, let's say from maybe South America or, you know, uh, somewhere else in in Europe where the lifestyle and everything else is vastly different it might well or it can often be a a significant problem for them yeah no for sure i mean i even you know i came from the united states and for me adjusted it took me a solid year to adjust and mm. i you know i spoke the same language at least at least yeah, on yeah. paper, spoke the same language. And then when you actually <laughs> heard some of the kids in the dressing room speak, I'd be like, I didn't understand a single word you just said, but I, I imagine it was nice. Uh, I don't know why everybody's laughing. Uh, but, um, no, but uh, yeah, it, it is, you know, it is hard. And, and, uh, and, and I, I think a lot of times, like, you know, that doesn't just happen at the youth level too. There's plenty of clubs that end up signing players for substantial amounts of money where it just doesn't work out, whether the, the player never settles or the player's family fails to settle, which of course, uh, means the player might be unhappy and, and all that good yeah. stuff. So it's just, um, it's, it's just hard. It's much more than just like, oh, he's, he's a great striker and he can finish and he scores a lot of goals. So he'll definitely come into our team and be great. Like it, it's, it's much more than just that. Two final questions just before we go. What is the main difference, would you say, in the way that a scout looks at a game and a fan looks at a game? Um, because I think, you know, there are people out there who who are good talent spotters, who can watch football and who can see talent within players. But generally, there must be a difference between the way you would watch a game as a scout and a, and a fan uh, would watch a game. Is, is there sort of one or two things that you could point to? Um, so I think, I think one of the most interesting things that I learned when I made kind of that transition from playing to scouting was, uh, going to a game and literally watching a player for 90 minutes and just essentially just watching that player and how he reacts on the ball, off the ball, when the ball's off the pitch, when his team's losing, when his team's winning, um, when he gets tackled really hard, if the weather's poor, like you, you, you'll leave the game with, this remarkably clear picture of, you know, one guy that was a part of this 22, 22 man show that had just taken place. Um, that, that became difficult just because, you know, as a fan, like you want to go watch a game and enjoy the game for what the game's worth, you mm. know, like, and not necessarily if, if the left winger has the ball, I don't want to be watching the right back, you know, especially if he's walking up the pitch, just trying to get back to the halfway line. Um, and, and I, I think that's like that's a big piece. I mean, with that said, like I'll have conversations with football fans after games, and 
often like they'll they'll make some you know some really amazing points about players where they'll have just focused on a certain guy the whole time and all that good stuff um i think i, I think it starts to it sometimes it tends to get a little bit difficult when you have to go watch when you're given two or three targets um in a game and you're starting to trying to focus on like what what's going on uh, as the game's developing across especially if they're on different teams um understanding exactly how they played throughout those games because you're i mean you're expected obviously to do that um mm. but it, you, you do learn, you know, you, you do learn a lot about um, players when you're just watching them um, specifically. And that I get asked a lot, like scouts, scouts, uh, budding scouts or people that want to get into the profession ask me um, what, you know, what, what do you what do you recommend I do? And I say, yeah, go watch a player, watch him for 90 minutes and then come back to me and tell me exactly what he did uh, in all these in all these different situations. Yeah. Uh, and that's and that's a good start. And then do it again the following. You can do it again the following. Week. And you'll learn, you know, you, you learn you learn quite a bit and you start to go. You start to get excited to see what a player does. Um, or if a player is presented with a new a new challenge, for example, if 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 he's a technical player and he has to go play against a team that's traditionally extremely rough, uh, you know, away from home and the weather's horrible, like it's you get excited yeah, yeah. to be like, I, I want to see this kid go do really well, or I want to see this player like go shine, um, and then you'll learn a lot when you when you watch him that time. So I think just literally just honing in and, and putting the magnifying glass on the one guy is the the, the big big difference. Okay, final question: uh, Who are we signing this summer? <laughs> I'm kidding. Of course. Hopefully, hopefully Andrew Magnus. <laughs> oh Jesus! I hope not. I really hope not. Uh, <laughs> football will have really gone to shit if if that happens. <laughs> Listen, Danny. Uh, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been really interesting and really enlightening. And uh, hopefully, we can catch up again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks a million to Danny Carbassian, former Arsenal player, uh, formerly head of scouting for North America for Arsenal, and he is still involved with the club. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed his insight into, uh, you know, how scouting works. It was obviously a bit difficult because he couldn't really go into any any great specifics about how things are done at Arsenal because, well, I mean, you just don't put that out there and you certainly don't tell, you know, a bloke on a podcast how you do things and what exactly you're looking for. But as a general view, and overall view of scouting and the work that scouts do uh, i hope you found that interesting you can follow danny on twitter as well if you like he is at d at d there's a blue ball in my office who's a fucking moron he's a fucking idiot i've got the door open i've got the window open and he's just buzzing around here and i want to kick his stupid fucking head in get out you fucking prick Sorry, I really, really don't like blue bottles. Like, what is the fucking point of them? Fuck off, get out! Get out! Anyway, thank you for listening, as always. I really do appreciate it. Uh, your continued support, uh, you know, on the site while things have been slow and on Patreon is hugely appreciated, not just by me, but by everybody involved in the site. And now that football is on its way back, we hope to ramp up the stuff that we're doing and, and give you even more. And hopefully Arsenal can give us some good performances and some good results uh, as we look to finish the 2019-20 season at last. James and I will be here on Monday. We'll have an Arsecast Extra for you then. In the meantime, have yourselves a great weekend, whatever you do. Catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye.
Arsenal Football Club today announced the retirement of Chairman Sir Chips Keswick. Chairman Sir Chips Keswick says... That's it, you cunt, I am out of here. I'm off down my villain Costa del Sol. See, sand and sangria, what more do you want? Enjoy the rest of your lives with that soft fucking ballet dancer, Josh Crocky. <laughs> Dad, was he talking about me? Shut up, Josh. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.